2020 is the 100th anniversary of women winning the right to vote in the United States, yet full equality for women in this country remains elusive. Yes, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris is the Democratic nominee for vice president, which is certainly significant. Yet she's only the second black woman ever to be elected to the U.S. Senate, which has only seen 57 female members since the dawn of our country. Only one quarter of the Senate is female today, while the much larger House, with 435 members, is 23% female. The number of women at the top of the business world is also scant. We have just reached an all-time high of 37 women CEOs of the Fortune 500, but that means that almost 93% of those top companies are led by men. Why has it taken so many years for women to make even these gains? What are the particular challenges faced by women who strive to be leaders? How can psychology help us better understand the factors that hold women back or push them down or discourage them from aiming for the top? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that explores the connections between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Alice Egley, a professor of psychology at Northwestern University who for many years has studied the psychology of gender, especially sex differences and similarities in leadership, pro-social behavior, aggression, partner preferences, and socio-political attitudes. Dr. Egley has written numerous articles, chapters, and books on these topics. Her most recent book, Through the Labyrinth, The Truth About How Women Become Leaders, challenges the common metaphor of the glass ceiling. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, Dr. Egley. I'm pleased to be here, Kim. This is not the first time a woman has been on the vice presidential ticket in this country, and women have run for president, although only once as a major party candidate. Is there something different about what's happening now, and are the reactions from the media and the public different this time around? Well, yes. Uh, I think that it was entirely expected, even demanded, of a Democratic candidate such as Joe Biden, because uh, the support for the Democratic Party is stronger among women than men. So it really called for women being represented. And then it's a time when there's a good deal of protest and unrest over minority issues. And so choosing a woman of color certainly made sense to represent that community, which tends to lean democratic, but to, to, you know, to call on their loyalty in this particular way. So I think it was entirely expected and uh, generally very well received. Yeah, that's been interesting that there has not been a whole lot of backlash, I think. Um, no. I mean, what are the characteristics that make her um, less of a target? Uh, she is uh, a quite uh, qualified in the sense that she had a number of political roles in California, and she is a senator, um, and so she has very good qualifications that would be normal in a male candidate. Uh, so she's qualified in that sense. Uh, she's also quite gifted as a speaker and the, and a debater, as the, as was displayed <laughs> earlier in the hearings in the Senate. So I think she struck the public as. You know, somebody who had the toughness to be a good campaigner. So what particular challenges do women politicians face first as candidates and then once they're elected? Well, there are serious challenges that are embedded in the culture in a sense. 
um, in terms of the way we think about leaders and the way we think about women and men. So this is well established in studies on stereotyping uh, done by psychologists and political scientists in this case. So we know that people think women are the nicer, kinder, more compassionate sex, more sympathetic to others, better social skills, uh, and that men are the tougher, more agentic, we call it, more assertive, more aggressive sex. Okay, you know about that. <laughs> but then... People think about uh, leaders as more agentic than communal. So they think about, you know, they have to take charge. They have to be tough, tell people what to do often. So that image is widely shared in the culture and is much more similar to men than women. So that puts women at something of a disadvantage and it sort of goes like that. Well, she's, you know, she's very nice. Um, but then the, but is, um, you know, I don't know if she's tough enough to handle that kind of situation. Could she really hold up in a big debate? You know, could she get people to do things which she have the respect and authority? Um, and so that lingers in the culture. And so women have to overcome, in a sense, these um, anxieties people have. It's not about being a good person or a competent person. It's about being a tough enough person to really take on that kind of role that demands a lot of competition and assertion. And and yet, if, if you're too tough as a woman, then that cuts against you as well. That's right. That's the agency paradox. <laughs> so... If you're very uh, assertive, like, so you say, well, okay, I'll be just like a man. Wrong. <laughs> that doesn't really work for women. Um, unless, you know, it could take on qualities of being assertive to some extent, but not to go to the extremes is dangerous, but add to it the qualities of warmth and kindness and empathy. Uh, so display both. That tends to be something that works for uh, women who are leaders or wish to be leaders. And you can see that in Kamala Harris right away. Uh, she speaks in a clear, pleasantly assertive way. She smiles a lot, too, um, and has a, a lot of feminine expressiveness in her gestures and voice. Not too much, but it's definitely there. And so I think she has that blend that, in fact, works very well for, for women in leadership roles. You recently published a study that looked at a large body of nationally representative public opinion polling and found that women are now perceived as being just as competent as men, as well as more communal, but they're seen as less ambitious. How have these views changed over the past decades? Is this good news for women leaders today? It's mixed news. <laughs> um, so this study was based on representative public opinion poll uh, data where people were asked about men and women. And the data go back to 1946 and then through 2018. So it's quite a nice series and so the way the pollsters do this is they ask a very direct question. They say, like, intelligence, more true of women, more true of men, or equally true. 
Um, and so we do see a lot of change <laughs> in that um, women's competence relative to men has risen. So most Americans now say equal. <laughs> um, but those who don't say equal are more likely to say women than men. So there, uh, competence leans slightly in the female direction. So that would be like being intelligent. Um, the other change is rather unexpected to many observers, I think, or social scientists in particular, that the communion of women versus men has increased. So now it's overwhelmingly true if you say uh, something like sympathetic, more true of women or men, it's women. So that has changed over time to be more extreme. Um, and agency doesn't change. So 1946, people say, saw men as more aggressive and assertive than women, and they still do, and there's just no, there's no significant change in that trend. So um, for women not to be troubled by these stereotypes, it's the agency that has to change as, as well as the competence. People have to see women as tough enough, and that still goes in the male direction. The competence is very helpful. You know, if anything, people, you know, women are somewhat more competent than men because competence is a, you know, something people expect of leaders. Um, and the communion is probably not particularly effective uh, in terms of being seen as even more communal than women in the past. Well, what do you think is different in other countries? I mean, women are, you know, still underrepresented in leadership in America, but other industrialized countries have been led by women. You know, you can think of Germany or England or you know, even New Zealand today. What's different there? The political scientists explain that there's uh, women have better chances at a parliamentary system than a presidential system. So in a parliamentary system, you know, the executive and the legislative branches are combined because the prime minister is the head of the party that wins, um, that has the majority. And so women can make their way up through good service and popularity in their own districts up the hierarchy in the party, you know, like Margaret Thatcher and a couple of others, and you can make it to the top of your party. And then, by the way, you get to be prime minister if your party is elected. They don't elect a person directly. They elect a party. But we don't have that. We have the separate executive. And so the focus is all on this one role uh, and, you know, being a woman or a man, you're voting for the person. And I think that brings out the, the difficulties that women have, even in the UK, but because they're never voted for as a person when they get to be prime minister. And then the other thing, in some countries, and it happened a little bit here, as an attempt, you know, there's a passing on through family, very elite family ties. Um, and so um, Indira Gandhi was Nehru's daughter. Right. And, you know, and so some countries have that passing on. And if there's not a male to pass it on to, it might get passed on to a wife in some cases uh, or, you know, to a child. 
Of course, we we had a hint of that with the Clintons, didn't we? Almost, <laughs> but it didn't it didn't go when all was said and done. So, but it's not a tradition in the U.S. to do that. Yeah. Um, exactly. There was the two bushes, so it looked like we did it, though. But anyway, it's a stronger tradition in some other countries where it's happened at an earlier point, you know, as when Indira Gandhi was prime minister of India. So there are differences in the governmental system. There may be differences in attitudes, too, but um, it's particularly the the structure of the political system, I think. Yeah. I mean, we would tend to see some of those cultures as being even more sexist than yes, the United States. Yes, but yet, like Pakistan and India and other countries have had... Right, Benazir Bhutto, yeah, same situation. Yeah, have had women, and uh, they tend to have been closely aligned in the narrow elites that were in the, you know, often by blood. Yeah. So in your book, Through the Labyrinth, uh, you challenge the notion of the glass ceiling, that solid but somewhat invisible barrier that uh, most of us think women face when it comes to reaching the highest echelons of leadership. Why do you think that metaphor is not apt and that a labyrinth is closer to the challenges that women face? Well, there's a couple of reasons, at least. <laughs> One is excess, it suggests a very solid barrier, and I don't think it's like prejudices aren't like that. They are more fungible and malleable. Um, and it isn't that we've never had women as, for instance, CEOs in the Fortune 500. Some, there are some and have been others. Um <clears throat> But the other reason, it suggests that the barrier is right near the top, right? So you move up through your career and, oh, my God, you can't be CEO because there's this barrier at the top, next to the top. But that's not how it works in terms of careers in management or other areas that involve leadership. The challenges are all along the way. It's in day one, you go to work <laughs> in as a, you know, a manager just coming in with your MBA. The challenges you have as a woman are, are there and they're there every day. And as you rise, there are different challenges, you know, it goes on and on. So it isn't as if there's, you're exactly the same as men and then near the top there's a glass ceiling. It's really a completely wrong metaphor. Uh, it, you know, it has some... Some truth to it, perhaps, but um, it doesn't adequately represent the nature of the challenges, which are all along the way. And so that's why we propose labyrinth, uh, that the man has a relatively straight road. You know, maybe he has some bumps along the way or whatever, but um, the woman has to go through this labyrinth. So she has to be smarter, right? And she has to figure out how to how to overcome these challenges that she might face as a woman. She might take a wrong turn, but, you know, it's possible to turn around and go on, you know, um, if you're really persistent. Um, but you got to expect you might get confused at some time and, you know, take a wrong turn. So it more represents the true complexity of, of women's careers in leadership than a glass ceiling does. You published a meta-analysis in 2011 that examined the extent to which stereotypes of leaders are culturally masculine. Can you talk about those findings and whether these stereotypes have changed in the intervening years? Right. We did publish a meta-analysis um, 
it involved actually three underlying types of studies that had looked at the leader stereotype. The most famous paradigm was started by Virginia Schein, and it's called the Think Manager, Think Male paradigm. It started first in 1973. Uh, and in that study, there are three groups of participants. One rates women, one rates men, and one rates managers or leaders. Um, and they do it on a long list of traits. And then they correlate these ratings, um, the men group to the leader group and the woman group to the leader group. And they find the male leader correlations are much higher than the woman leader correlations, which is just what we said before. People think that leaders are, you know, masculine and assertive. And so men are more like leaders than women are. And so that's why it got called the think manager, think male paradigm. And so it started in 1973. So we could look at it over many years and we did find some shift. And that was the woman leaders relationship. There was some gain in thinking that leaders had more feminine characteristics, that is, in particular, more social skills. So the, the notion of leader had changed so that, yes, people continued to think that leaders need to be tough and assertive, but by the way, they should be somewhat socially skilled. Um, and so it was a hint of androgyny coming in, but still the masculine characteristics won out over the feminine, even in the most recent uh, study. So it was a, a shift that would be welcoming to women, this growth of androgyny, but it didn't go all the way to androgyny. Um, it just was some ad addition of the social skills, sympathy, empathy kind of thing to what people expect for leaders. You've also looked at differences in pro-social behaviors between men and women. How are they different and how are they the same? Pro-social behavior you know, encompasses a lot of different kinds of behaviors. And so we found that both sexes engage in pro-social behavior, a lot of it. So they're similar in engaging in this class of behaviors, but they tend to specialize to some extent in, in different aspects. Um, and one of the things we were interested in, in particular, was pro-social behavior where the helper puts him or herself at some risk. Um, and that was interesting because there was a lot of differentiation. So men are more likely to do physically dangerous acts to save other people's lives, such as saving somebody from drowning, uh, running into a burning building and pulling out somebody, intervening in a crime setting where the criminal has a gun. Um, so these are truly life-threatening and although women sometimes do these things uh, it's considerably less likely but another thing that has some danger um, is uh, living kidney donation you know giving your kidney you're a perfectly healthy person and this person's kidneys have given out and would you jump up and say well you can have mine <laughs> that's not an easy decision um, because it involves not, not actually a lot of risk, but it, it involves an operation and some 
some real risk to your health and whatever. Um, and we find women are more likely to do that. Um, it's uh, to give parts of their body. It's often done in, in family. Uh, it's within families because the more you're genetically matched, you know, the safer it is for the person who receives it. But women are more likely to. Um, and, and highly disproportional for giving to a spouse. Women are much more likely to give to a husband than husband is to a wife. Um, and so, That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so there's a dangerous kind of helping behavior, but it's it's somewhat female dominated. Um, so other kinds, you know, volunteer organizations. Um, such as doctors and nurses who go into dangerous situations and that kind of thing. It's very, women are very well represented uh, in those kinds of organizations, even though there's some risk. Um, another thing, we, but of course, there's a higher proportion of women nurses. Yeah, than, than yeah, but the, both nurses and doctors and even psychologists uh, are needed in those situations because they're traumatic. Sure. So another thing we looked at, uh, it took quite a lot of time to gather all the available data, was Holocaust rescuing by non-Jewish per persons, um, which happened in the occupied countries of Europe. And there were records. Um, they're actually kept by Yad Vashem, which is an organization in Israel, Um and they are held at the also at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, from which we got the records, <laughs> from which we could classify uh, the people by nation, nationality and sex. And we found um, women slightly overrepresented. Often you couldn't tell because it was a couple, you know. But then when there was right. individuals recognized for having rescued there was a slight overrepresentation of women and this was extremely dangerous particularly in Poland the rescuers were just sent to the camps if they were or, or even killed um, right away so it was a very dangerous act so what did we think we thought as an overall um, description that women tended to be overrepresented when there was a very deeply relational kind of act um, as giving your kidney to another person. That's very deeply relational. And the Holocaust rescuing often was too, because, you know, it would be a co-worker or a knock on the door and you had to let people into your house and hide, you know, in the Anne Frank case to hide them. So this was very deeply relational. And so the women... Um, was somewhat overrepresented when the helping was of this type. Um, and men were more overrepresented when the act demanded often physical strength, of course, and um, some sudden action of rescue in a dangerous situation and stranger rescue. You know, the person, yeah. the person that's out there drowning is often not in your family. Um, but, you, you know, it, you're at the beach and it becomes apparent. So that kind of stranger rescuing demanding the very sudden decision um, and often there was a, you know, it could be a physical element um, in strength being an advantage that men are overrepresented. 
So there was some gendering in all of this. <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense. I mean, especially if, I mean, a woman may say, oh, I'd like to run into that burning building and save those children, but I don't think I can, I, I could physically yeah, do Yeah, you're not sure you could, or it could be a man or a grown, grown person in there. And, and yeah. you couldn't, and they are trained, of course, but um, firefighters. But uh, ordinary people sometimes do those things too, you know, not just the firefighter. Sure. Well, let's step back for a minute and look at the big picture, because you've spent your career looking at differences and similarities between men and women. And during those years, there have been a lot of cultural changes. There are more women in the workforce today. Men are beginning to question the societal expectations for them to be tough and aggressive. Uh, the Me Too movement has rendered some behaviors unacceptable. Are men and women, do you think, changing intrinsically through these upheavals? Are the differences narrowing between what American society considers masculine and what it considers feminine? Wow, that is a very big question. Certainly, women have changed profoundly by, you know, most women moving into the labor force, into a whole range of roles. Um, so women have had to, their lives have changed. But if you look at that labor force, it's pretty segregated. So women tend to be in roles that are communally demanding. Nursing and teaching and social work, all women are overrepresented. You can say, well, yeah, but what, what about those other roles they've gone into? Like they're lawyers and doctors too, aren't they? Yes. But then there's an internal segregation. So look at public interest law. You'll see a whole lot of women and family law, a whole lot of women. Um, and you look at uh, medicine, it's obvious where you, which specialty is most female dominated. Pediatrics. Pediatrics. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, gynecology and oh, psychiatry, there are a lot of women. So, again, in the more communally demanding areas and in management, in business, you could also guess which area is most female-dominated. Human resources. <laughs> and uh, public uh, public relations, which demands, you know, a lot of social skill to go out there and represent your country. So there's, at, at some deep level of communion and agency, there's less change than people perhaps think because of the segregation, not only between occupations, but within occupations at the kinds of subspecialties the women versus the men take on. So, yes, there's been enormous change, um, you know, and we see in the stereotypes what's certainly ought to be there, which is the rise of women's communion, because after all, women are more educated now, you know, than men, many more college degrees, and even the PhD goes slightly in the female direction now. So there's an enormous change in a kind of education, therefore, which produces knowledge and competence um, of the of that type, and so that's an enormous change of women um, becoming like men in that sense, but overtaking them, 
so that's fantastic. But there's this underlying agency and communion, the yin and yang d- dynamic, that we still see in the data. And so we don't know what exactly that comes from. You know, there's the nature-nurture question there. Right. So do you have any words of wisdom for those American women who are hoping someday to be president or CEO of a Fortune 500 company? What can they do in our current culture to improve their odds of success? Well, one thing we see, particularly in politics, uh, in running for office, the women are more qualified (laughs) in the sense they have more past experience and education that's relevant to the job. They're kind of overqualified in terms of those kinds of criteria. I'm not sure the extent to which that's true in business, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so the idea would be don't skip on the qualifications. You know, if most of those people have MBAs, get one and get one from the best place you can get one from. <laughs> um, and then if you want to go into politics, okay, when you're young, you got to get started. When you're in college, go to the Republican or Democratic uh, society for the students and try to get into leadership roles and then volunteer for campaigns. <laughs> you know, get the knowledge, get the contacts, because they're, they're probably going to be more important for, in general for the woman than the man, you know. Uh, we find that in politics it's harder for women to get the um, – you know, the support and money for the campaign than it is for men. So you got to get well networked um, to compete. So it's the route may be a little harder. Therefore, you have to have you have to bring more to bear. So don't skimp on it. Don't think you could skimp on it. Um, So to get in there and, and get the kind of background that's as ideal as possible. Uh, So that's very important. Um, and then you do need to keep in mind the double bind. We, this is what we talked about before, but another na- name is the, the double bind that as a woman, you're expected to be communal, to be kind and caring and, you know, nice. And as a man, you're as a, as a leader, rather, you're expected to be able to take charge and to be assertive. And, um, you know, to be able to argue with people and hold your own. <laughs> um, so the, there's both of those things. The men can just do the latter, you know. But the women have to to be successful, ordinarily have to bring the communion along. Because it's very important for them to be liked. Um, men can get away often with not being so liked. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the woman, if she's, if she's disliked, it's, uh, you know, I think that was part of Hillary Clinton's problem. A lot of people disliked Trump, but a lot of people disliked Hillary. And I think that was a, a worse, that was more of a disadvantage for her because she's a woman. Um, yeah. And so, you know, to keep in mind the double bind and that you will have to negotiate it. And there's smart ways to do it. I think Kamala Harris, insofar as I've seen her on television, is doing a good job with that. Um, you know, so look at women who appear to be doing a good job as role models. Um, yeah, and then persistence. Um, you know, because you're in that labyrinth. You yeah, you're in that. Take a wrong turn. Yeah, don't give yeah, up. Yeah, don't give up. Right. 
um, yeah, just learn from it, you know, when things go bad. In all charisma, many things I've done, I wish had gone better or I did something wrong, but, you know, I hung in there. <laughs> um, so that's important in all careers. But in your, if you're in a career that has a labyrinth, then it's even more important. You know, you could get discouraged, but take a deep breath and, and learn from it and go on. Yeah, so I think... You know, I'm, I admire women who who do make it through to these leadership roles. I think it, it because I think on the average it just takes more skill than it did for the man in in leadership. You know, he he wouldn't be so much tested and questioned as, as to whether he could do the job. So, sounds a little unfair, but I guess you just have to put up with that, it's right? It's unfair, but it, it's it's like you also have a burden for the people become the women become come along later. You know. So we could be thankful for Hillary Clinton, yeah, yeah, uh, that sh she was there and got people used to her. No, she didn't win, but she won the popular vote. Hey, come on now. So um, the women that come next, like Kamala Harris, I think have an easier time because of her and other women in politics. So yeah, so we have to think it's unfair, but <laughs> it's not as unfair as it was earlier um, <laughs> because they were there. And uh, I hope to make it less unfair for the women who come next. That's a good way to look at it. Well, Dr. Egley, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really interesting and, and just a very, um, almost a fun conversation to have. Thank you, Kim. I enjoyed talking with you. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at speakingofpsychology.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills. <laughs>